If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board, while Willard's getting booking the guests in the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. There you go. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, what do we got? Oh, still uh, pressure on the Speaker of the House uh, to step down. We're going to talk to Tasha Kierden about this uh, coming up a little later on this hour, who's written an interesting piece on this, because he's a great guy, apparently. And, and, you know, she's known him for years and what have you. But, you know, you just can't be making mistakes like this. It's, uh, you know, we just got through a speaker that did the exact same thing. And hopefully, you know, people were, were learning from that and not the case. We'll see where it goes. There's a report out on Thursday. He says uh, this is uh, Greg Fergus, that if uh, the House votes, He'll uh, step down. Well, if they do, he won't have a choice. Uh, but anyway, so we'll see where that goes. And um, this is kind of interesting, too. We've, uh, uh, you know, we're obviously hearing more and more about affordability and more and more about the housing uh, crunch. And and again, this is a, as we've talked about many times, a self-inflicted wound. It's what happens when you don't build over the last 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years. You end up with a shortage. And then, of course, when you bring Bring in, you know, like 1.1 million more Canadians and only build 200 and some odd thousand homes. Uh, obviously, that's going to take a problem which was already a crisis and make it even worse. So all of a sudden now, because the, the federal government is just uh, nose diving in the polls, uh, they're coming up with all kinds of housing announcements and such in regard uh, to affordability and trying to turn this around. And again, um, even Canada Mortgage and Housing has said they're going to need much, much, much more than they even have scheduled right now. Uh, a lot of that isn't even shovels in the ground yet. So um, it's fascinating when you see a headline that says Canada revives a wartime housing program amid housing crunch. The federal government is doffing, uh, dusting off a second World War era housing plan to ignite the pace of home construction in Canada. Housing Minister Stephen Fraser said on Tuesday, confirmed Global News report from Monday that the uh, minority liberals were taking the nearly 80 uh, year old program off the shelf and revamping it. Here is a clip from the housing minister or a series of clips explaining what he's doing. Listen. It provides an extraordinary opportunity to use the solutions of the past to, to uh, uh, identify uh, uh, and overcome, rather, uh, challenges that we face today. Uh, we'll be looking for pre-approved designs for multiplexes, for mid-rise buildings, for student housing, for seniors' residences, and other small to medium-scale residential properties. Think about non-profit developers who are seeking to uh, deal with the rising cost of building. And to be able to have access to a design off the shelf provided by the government is going to reduce the cost of hiring their own architect, and it's going to allow them to speed up the process of approvals through CMHC's application process. So uh, this just blows my mind because it is a complete 180 to what the liberals and any of those that are left of center who are environmentalists and don't believe in building, which is how we got here in Ontario over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years, 25 years. Uh, if you don't build and you keep bringing more people in, you're going to end up with a self-inflicted shortage. So um, but I find it fascinating that now they want to build these kind of cookie cutter neighborhoods 
And again, I'm not criticizing the idea, but whenever you listen to the extremists, the environmental extremists, and they're barking about urban sprawl, all they show you is those neighborhoods that were built in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s in a post-World War boom. How they all, you know, they all look the same. They're all bop, 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 bop. They're all together. Dee, 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 dee. And so it just amazes me in to no end that the left of center liberals that have now gone to the extreme left. And, and you know, we've been living with it in Ontario for 20 years prior to Doug Ford, uh, uh, 15 years anyway, prior to Doug Ford, that, you know, now after not building at all, they're going to build exactly what the poster is for uh, for urban sprawl when they're telling everybody not to build in the first place. So it just amazes me that, you know, uh, environmentalists who have refused to build, and already, let's be honest, 50% of the builds are going on in within municipal boundaries, which is great. I mean, you know, you, you can intensify, uh, uh, but or densify rather, but only to a certain point. And, you know, that's not going to solve the problem. Uh, you also need neighborhoods. And so now they're going to a second World War housing uh, era housing plan to design a whole pile of cookie cutters type homes that will be easily approved so you can get this stuff built really lickety split. And again, anytime you listen to an environmentalist who's against, uh, you know, and the, oh, the urban sprawlers, they're a secret urban sprawl. The pictures of the neighborhoods they use are of this type of housing from the post-World War II era. So we are going backwards because we didn't build in the last couple of decades. It is just absolutely astounding. Now, can this be done right? Of course it can, but not when it's rushed and not when you got a bunch of politicians involved in it. So again, it just, it amazes me how, you know, you've got uh, the prime minister here. We had Kathleen Wynne and Dalt McGinty before that. No, we're not building anything. We're not building anything more. That's it. We're stopping. And now all of a sudden we're playing catch up and going to repeat the same mistakes that we did apparently the first time. It, it's just, it, it's just, it just astounds me that we're dusting off Second World War era housing plans, not because there was a war and everybody was off fighting for the good of the world. It was because politicians refused to build. End of story. Uh, and, you know, a second world solution to a 2020, a second world war solution to a 2023 problem. It's, it's amazing to me. Uh, we certainly know the story of the Speaker of the House. Uh, this is uh, the second one in a uh, short period of time. The first one had him having to step down for uh, the Nazi in the gallery situation while uh, the Ukraine president was here. Uh, this time, Greg Fergus being uh, asked to step down because uh, he was uh, gave a message to the outgoing uh, temporary liberal, provincial liberal leader in his speaker's attire in his office. Uh, the speaker says, that he thought this was private, and of course it ended up being played at the Liberal Convention. Uh, to talk more about this, Tasha Kiridin, journalist, writer, National Post, G-Zero Media, and her Substack page, In My Opinion, author of The Right Path, and she is here now. Uh, Tasha, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you, yes. So interesting, Speaker Greg Fergus knew better. He should resign. Politics demand more than good character. It demands good judgment. You talk about uh, how you've known this man for a while, and this was difficult for you. Why was this hard to write? Well, because I have known Greg since uh, we were both teenagers in Montreal. He went to a high school near mine, and we were part of the same 
you know, debating society uh, between schools and into college. And he was a young political on the liberal side. I was on the progressive conservative side. So, you know, I consider him a friend. Um, and uh, I, uh, you know, you never, you never like to take your, your friends out, if so to speak. But in this case, I think he's made the wrong call to try and stay. Um, he's someone who's known politics a very, very long time. And um, he should do the honorable thing. But um, again, if I don't, if I don't, if I don't speak the, the truth I feel, then I'm, I'm being as hypocritical as him here because I think that you know he let his personal bias get in the way of good judgment as a speaker. Uh, I'm about to say to you, well, Tasha, everybody says, including yourself that, uh, or know him, that he is a quality guy. He's a stand-up guy. Yeah. But I guess we said the same thing about David Johnston. Well, you could say that. I mean, yeah, Greg is, is someone who's uh, is well is respected and liked by everyone who knows. Him. He's very funny. He's very smart, um, and he's been, like I said, very political pretty much his whole life. Which is why, again, he should know the rules here. Um, it's not an excuse either for uh, you know someone is nice, they screw up, they don't pay the price because they're a nice guy. So I think you have to be clear in your standards, and you know the liberals have a tendency to not let people, uh, you know, not make people pay the price for their, their mistakes um, in cabinet and other places. Uh, but in this case, he's not even a liberal technically anymore. He, I mean, he is, but he should be impartial. And he was not impartial in the way he acted by making a recording of a, an, um, a testimonial for John Fraser, the outgoing uh, Ontario liberal leader. And that testimony was played in front of the entire convention. And he claims, Greg says, Greg Fergus says, he claims he didn't know, but it was going to be public. But even if it was private, you don't wear your speaker's robes and do that because you immediately make the office partisan. And it's a very strict line you have to walk for many, many reasons of, of protocol that apply in the House. Uh, considering what happened to the last speaker, Tasha, are you surprised we're even having this discussion? I mean, there isn't somebody there that says, wait, hold, hold on, let's reexamine this and think if it's the right thing to do. It just seems the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. Well, in this case, I think it was a personal decision. and. Um, Greg Fergus said when he testified to the PROC committee, the Procedures and House Affairs Committee, he said, uh, you know, I did this between meetings. Um, I was doing it for a friend. Uh, it's something, it's, you know, uh, basically it's like I messed up. He used that kind of language. So he knows he did the wrong thing. Um, I think with Rhoda, it was more a case of somebody in the office really didn't quite vet things properly. And it shows more right. maybe of an institutional situation. Yeah. Uh, the last speaker, this wasn't a question. He was gone pretty quick. Why isn't that happening here? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, you have to make a motion to ask the speaker to resign if they don't go of their own volition. And in this case, the conservatives would have seen uh, Chris Dontremont, the deputy speaker, would have had to basically okay that motion, greenlight it. He's the one who might benefit the most in the situation. Um, he wants, he's, you know, he's been deputy speaker now, I believe it's twice. He probably would be in line to be speaker. So, the conservatives, if they if they made such a motion, it would look like, well, you know, we're just trying to get rid of Greg Fergus, who's right. a liberal. We'll get our own guy in. They don't want to wear that. So they've printed the whole thing to this committee that I mentioned before. So that's one thing. The committee is going to make a recommendation later this week, probably. Um, but the second thing is, the reality is that Greg is the first non-white speaker the House has ever seen. There have been 38 mm -hmm. speakers, of which 30 six have been white men. One has been a white woman. Um, and uh, they've been of background, except for Anthony Rhoda, they've all been English or French. So the diversity aspect is something that the Liberals celebrated when Greg was elected. Um, and, you know, it's time that we do have speakers and other people in office who reflect the diversity of our country. But that's not a reason to keep someone there if they mess up. So 
I think, though, people are anxious about this because he is the first black speaker and he would be gone after a very short time. And nobody likes that. Like I said, I don't like it. It hurts to write it. But the reality is you have to have certain standards and it doesn't matter who you are, or what you are. You have to respect the same standards for everybody. Uh, if that's the case, it sounds like we know how a committee would call this. How do you think this is going to play out? Well, uh, if I had to guess, they are apparently going to be, I understand the House is supposed to sit till Thursday, maybe Friday. So I suspect this committee, um, if it's going to, if it's going to drop the hammer or even if it doesn't, it will probably do it at the 11th hour before Christmas recess when no one's paying attention or paying less attention. Um, I'm not sure which way it'll go. I have a feeling that they probably probably will not ask him to quit. Um, I only say that because of the reasons I've already said. I don't think that I don't think there's a massive appetite for Greg Fergus to leave the, the post. It's just mm. again, it speaks to this lack of respect for the very strict rule, and the rule is there because the speaker has to ensure neutrality and no favoritism for either side in the house. It's about speech. It's about allowing who speaks. So if you believe in freedom of speech, you believe that speech should be respected, the speaker has to respect that too, or else the whole place, the whole system falls down. So he should do the honorable thing and go. I hate to say it, but that at the end of the day is what he should do before they render any kind of decision. Tasha Kierden with us. Speaker Greg Fergus knew better. He should resign her latest in the National Post. We'll wait to see later on this week exactly what does happen. Tasha, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too. All right. Uh, always love bringing in Nick Nanos and talking about how Canadians are feeling. A new survey from Nanos has found that Canadians are feeling slightly more confident in the carbon tax's effectiveness at com- uh, combating climate change than they were a couple of months ago. But uncertainty is still high. Nearly half of Canadians surveyed the poll found still believe the carbon tax is ineffective at combating climate change. But this number has gone down since July. Well, the percentage of those who say its effectiveness has gone up in the same period. And to talk more about this, Nick Nanos, Chief Data Scientist, founder of Nanos Research, here now. Nick, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm fine, thanks. All right, let's get this in two parts, uh, Nick. First of all, uh, it seemed that for the longest time, Canadians were willing just to put hand in pocket and shell out anything for a carbon tax. Now that seems to be changing, uh, whether it's the parliamentary budget officer saying that, you know, this doesn't really have an effective, uh, isn't an effective means of bringing our targets down. Why is the attitude on this change? Why are we now questioning it? I think a lot of it has to do with, uh, with Canadians, uh, you know, tightening the belt, having problems uh, struggling to pay for the rent or the groceries. You know, it's interesting in, in the survey that we did for CTV News, we asked Canadians about this whole idea of, you know, the importance on the carbon tax of, you know, whether we should be focusing on keeping costs down or protecting the environment in the long term. And uh, about 40% of Canadians uh, think the priority should be keeping costs down. And that's up. It was 27% in November mm-hmm. 2018. Still about half of Canadians are good with protecting the environment in the long term. But what this shows is that there's an increasing proportion who are focused on, you know, the car- you know, when they think of the carbon tax, one of the things they're thinking about is we have to try to keep our costs down today because of the rising cost of living. Uh, why do you think there was a slight increase in those that are thinking it is effective over the last couple of months? Well, I think people are increasingly becoming uh, polarized. And we have to say a slight increase from 15 to 21%. So, People are still twice yeah. as likely to think that it's not effective, a not effect, uh, an ineffective way to combat climate change. So before it was like three times people were more likely to say that it was ineffective rather than effective. 
Now it's down to two times, but you know, still, it's only one out of every five that think that uh, you know the a carbon tax is an effective way to combat climate change. So yeah, it's up a bit. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with you know people, an increasing proportion of people thinking that you know there's an issue with climate change and that we need to act, but it's still a minority, Scott. So. Yeah, it's up, uh, but it's it's interesting how this always seems to become a divisive uh, uh, argument because, as we've talked before, the majority of Canadians are greatly concerned about climate change and want to do something about it. Where we differ is what we do about it. Yet it appears if we, um, y- you know, if we question something like a carbon tax, it's a, well, you're a denier or you're this or you're that. And like, no, no, no. It was just we're questioning whether this is the right strategy or not. Are, are people getting lost in the sauce here? I think so. And, you know, I think, you know, the one thing that's missing. So, you know, Scott, I know, you know, probably for someone like you and me who are older, more mature, I mean, is that how we <laughs> Sure, let's go with that. You know. You know, I remember the olden days as a kid where we focused on conserving energy, you know, and the thing is, when you conserve the energy, you actually save money. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think uh, I think that would be kind of a welcome message that, you know, one of the things, one of the easiest things that, that Canadians can do to, uh, you know, reduce their carbon footprint would be to, you know, turn their, turn their thermostat mm-hmm. down one degree. Uh, so that it's not necessarily so you're not walking around in your uh, shorts and stuff like short and t-shirt during the winter time, um, and I think you know things like that would be welcome. It's just one of those things where when it comes to increasing taxes in order to have change behavior, that's one side. So it's punishment. Another way would right. be thinking of how can we reward people for consuming less energy because maybe they're walking to work or maybe they're you know not uh, keeping their homes super warm or super cold in the uh, in in the summertime is the tide turning on whether the carbon tax is an effective means of doing all of this as i mentioned i think most canadians are concerned about this are we looking at those other options as you're 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 suggesting i think canadians don't know what to do right now you know that's all they know and you know we just had this filibuster with the conservatives right and the Mm -hmm. uh and the, the bill in the house of commons in ottawa and you know, the thing is, is what it, I think for average Canadians looking at something like this, it's kind of like, do you want a carbon tax or do you not want a carbon tax? You know, do you want to pay more taxes? And, you know, the sad thing is, is, you know, we're going to be asking people to choose between, you know, driving to work and groceries, which are kind of both unpleasant things to choose between. And, uh, you know, I think, I think it's, it's, it's much more complicated, you know, for a lot of Canadians and they don't know what to do. And the, and the politicians don't agree, but you know, I think the reality is, is there's only one taxpayer and they can only afford so much. And if uh, the price of gasoline and the price of other things in, the, in kind of people's energy portfolio go up, you know, they got to find the money someplace. And, and these things are going up higher than wages are. Would we be questioning any of this or certainly to the degree that we are, Nick, if there hadn't been the carve out for Atlantic Canada? Probably not, because it put it put it right in the political hot seat. And you know the thing is, yeah. as soon as the federal government uh, made a carve out for Atlantic Canada for heating, uh, heating oil and stuff like that, um, you know, should we really be surprised that you know premiers and Canadians and other parts of the country said, you know, well we should we should also be excluded on that? And I think for the Liberals, I think this particular decision, realistically, for, uh, was from a political perspective, was probably a poor decision because, you know, the thing is, is 
as soon as they made the exclusion, they knew that they should have known that other people would be asking for it. And then also, as soon as they made the exclusion, they knew that people that supported the carbon tax would be disappointed. It's like a no-win proposition for the yeah. liberals based on what they've done. Um, do you think they will leave it alone moving forward? I'm asking you to look into your crystal ball because, like you said, it seems no matter what you do, you're going to tick someone off. I think if Pierre Poiliev has anything to do with it, they're not going to be able to dodge the bullet on this one. He's just going to talk about axing the tax over and over again and trying to uh, hammer the uh, hammer the liberals. So I don't think this is going away because... You know the, the the conservatives are the official opposition. They're gonna they're gonna focus on this and continue to focus on this as an example of how Canadians are struggling to pay for the bills, and the Liberals have introduced something that makes it a little worse. Um, uh, we're we're seeing a new announcement after new announcement coming out on housing with the federal housing minister uh, talking today about you know using old uh, post World War II plans in order to get uh, uh, more housing built and such. Is this moving the needle at all for the Liberals? Because they seem to have really uh, stepped up the communication in the last little while. Well, they've stepped up the communication, but there's they still trail the Conservatives in the double digits. Uh, and yeah. right now, the Conservatives remain in, in majority territory. You know, the one thing that the that we haven't heard, and it's probably the one thing that Canadians probably would like to hear on the housing front, is how is the federal government working in cooperation with provincial governments and municipal governments to solve the housing solution? Because housing is not a federal responsibility. Yeah. But, you know, the Liberals are talking about this because they know that Canadians are worried about affordability. I think if they wanted to move the numbers, I think they'd say, hey, we're ready to come to the table with our provincial and municipal partners to have a strategy so that we can deal with this, as opposed to the snipe, sniping and bickering that we're seeing on a lot of these files. What about the dental plan? We've only got a few seconds left here, Nick. Do you think that's going to move the needle for them? No, because if you can't pay for the groceries, hmm. not to diminish the importance of a dental plan, it is important, but there are some other things like paying for the groceries, rent, housing that are quite important. Nick Nanos with us, Chief Data Scientist, founder of Nanos Research, uh, Canadians' thoughts on the carbon tax. Nick's as al- uh, Nick, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Fascinating article in the Globe and Mail by Joseph Filippowitz, uh, uh, policy analyst with the Fraser Institute. And we've talked about this a lot, and we were just talking about it again recently uh, in regard to housing and the crisis that we're in. Uh, the government just announcing now that they're going to look at a sort of a wartime post-World World, World War II uh, housing plan that uh, uh, was put forth, I guess, way back when, when the soldiers were all coming home. Uh, but the article in the Globe and Mail, there are no solutions to Canada's housing crisis, only trade-offs. And to talk more about all of this, Joseph Filipowicz with his uh, policy analyst, Fraser Institute, here now. Joseph, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Thanks for having me on the show, Scott. Great to be here. So, Joseph, what are the three trade-offs? What do we have to do here? Because it seems that there are options. It's just we're not really sure which one to pick. But is it is it pretty black and white here? So, yeah, great question. There's a number of ways in which we can tackle the housing crisis, and they're not mutually exclusive, meaning that we could combine them. Um, mm. And, and that they fall under three kind of broad categories, because underpinning all of this is, uh, is the fact that we have a huge imbalance between demand and supply. So we need a lot of homes uh, and we don't build enough. So that's a that's a big gap and it's a growing gap. Uh, so how do we close that gap? We could either uh, grow our cities outwards. Right. So we're accelerating. The, uh, the construction of homes, but but we're leaning mainly on the construction of homes at the urban fringe. So new neighborhoods, for example, or or even new cities, as we've done for for most of Canada's history. Right. There's resource towns like like Fort McMurray 
that didn't exist uh, a couple of generations ago. So, so um, kind of making use of Canada's large landmass to get more homes built. So, so that's option one. Option two uh, would be to uh, shoehorn more homes into existing neighborhoods, right? So, so to increase density in existing urban areas um, uh, at a scale that you know we haven't seen before. So, we would need to maybe triple or quadruple the efforts that we're currently making to do that if we really want to close the gap uh, between supply and demand. And then, lastly, because we're you know we're talking about both supply and demand, uh, there's uh, the, the demand on the demand side of the equation. We could also look at uh, slowing population growth. So that's mainly controlled. Uh, by the federal government through its immigration policies, be it permanent residency or or, or especially a temporary residency, um, and and a whole host of of, uh, of policies influencing that side of things, right? So so the government could basically hit the brakes on uh, on 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 immigration numbers at least in the short term uh, until the 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 market kind of returns to balance. So those are the the three broad options, but every single one of these options, right, uh, includes trade offs. They include uh, consequences that it's not clear a majority of Canadians want to uh, uh, would would prefer to live with, um, and it's kind of that that issue that sort of lack of a clear unambiguous majority for any of these options that that has sort of uh, um, uh, confused or if not confused at least uh, 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 made made a politician's job a lot harder. Right? How, how do they decide which approach to take or which combination of approaches to take when it's not really clear? That, that you know, we collectively, a majority of Canadians, is willing to live with any of these solutions. Is that not because, in the end, Joseph, as you said, not mutually exclusive? It's a combination of all of these. Why do we always look to the extremes to find the solution here? It's a bit of all of this, is it not? It, it's a good point, right? Like right now, what we're doing, uh, whether we know it or not, is kind of is kind of choosing none of these options, right? We don't build enough housing, yeah. period. Uh, whether it's inside our cities or outside our cities. And then on top of that, we have historically high population growth. So we've chosen none of these options. And you're right, if we were to choose a mix of the three, um, you know, I think I think we could we could get a lot closer to finding balance in, in the housing market. And because, of course, there is a self-inflicted wound here where we haven't built enough over the last few decades, we've got uh, a, a self-inflicted housing crunch here, high demand, low supply. Now we're talking about doing things that we were doing post-World War II in order to catch up. What that, what scare, and, and again, whatever works, works. But what's scaring me about all of this is like now we're going to see a repeat of the post-World War II development that if you look at posters from the uh, anti-urban sprawl people, they're all of these neighborhoods i mean are we going to repeat the same mistakes here have we learned anything well it, it, that's a good question too and so far you know i've heard this i've heard this this sort of slogan before and i call it a slogan because i i don't really see much behind it i don't see a clear blueprint about what that will look like um sure there's there's uh you know preference to incentivize maybe some rental housing here um, or, or, or maybe to make the, uh, the economics of building this kind of housing a little bit easier or, or maybe change some zoning there. Uh, but there's not like a clear, coherent approach. And, and, and again, I think this goes back to the trade-offs. So, so I think you hit the nail on the head by talking about uh, what uh, the, last, uh, the, the last time we, we had a post-war development, what that looked like, right? The cities like Ajax didn't exist until, uh, until mm-hmm. after World War II when it was essentially built um, uh, by CMHC, by the federal government. Um, they wouldn't do that today, or at least I don't think I don't see them doing that today. So, so the question is, how are they going to do this, right? And and again, I think we need to uh, collectively issue some clear instructions to politicians. Like we are okay with with neighborhoods changing, or or we're okay with having more neighborhoods at the urban fringe, or we're okay with slowing population growth, or 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 all three. But it needs to be unambiguous that we're okay with closing this gap because right now, again, uh, the collective choices we're making, whether we know it or not, is is to do neither of these things. 
How do we make sure now that we've got this building boom going on that we do do it right and don't uh, repeat the, the same mistakes? You know, we build the perfect neighborhoods with parks, with uh, bike paths, with transit, with all the things that we need, as well as maybe a backyard. That's that's another great that's another great point. Because, and because I, I don't think it's clear again that that we've landed on on that option. I think you're right that there's some kind of mix is going to be absolutely needed, um, but. Right now, I'm, I'm getting no signals from any government that there's that there's a clear sort of direction. Um, uh, you know, if 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 we're talking about getting more purpose-built rental housing built, that's absolutely necessary. We need lots of that, but we also need lots of family-sized housing. And and you know, Canadians have basically expressed loud and clear throughout the pandemic that they want places with more space, maybe a yard. Um, so 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 the you know whatever policy response follows. Needs to absolutely take into effect, into account the fact that we have many needs, and that you know we might not be comfortable with the idea of building a bit more on the urban fringe, but maybe we need that just just you know just as much as we need a lot of building inside of our cities, um, and, and maybe also slower population growth. So it's it's just all these decisions that are that are currently kind of politically difficult that we need to walk through. Like we really need to think through with what they actually uh, apply. And a combination of all, as you said, Joseph Falapowitz with us. Uh, there's no solutions to Canada's housing crisis, only trade-offs, the latest that uh, you will find in the Globe and Mail. Uh, Joseph, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks. Thanks for having me on the show, Scott. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we've been chattering uh, a lot about this, and there's rumors flying around this week that uh, I guess something uh, is going to come out a little later on the week in regard to changing uh, the way that uh, beer is sold in this province and taking away some of the privileges that the beer store uh, now possesses. Uh, in other words, opening it up and letting other people uh, sell and, and other varieties of, and, and, and you know, whether it's sixes, twelves, or twenty fours in other areas. Uh, and there's lots of speculation and chatter how this is going to change the beer store, and I'm sure it will change it a bit, but I'm not sure how much of this uh, is really going to change anything other than, of course, making it all more convenient. And, um, you know, many are arguing as I'm reading various comments in the media in regard to this. It's like, well, there's other more important things to do. Uh, yeah, but I think you can walk and chew gum at the same time. And I don't know if you've ever traveled to the States or Europe. I, I, you know, I can't remember any place where I've got to go into something like a beer store or LCBO to buy it. It's, you just get it in the grocery store or the corner store or whatever. Uh, let's bring in Colin DeMello, Queens Park Bureau Chief. He is with us now. Colin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. So, Colin, what can you tell us about the changes that are coming to the beer store situation? We understand there's going to be an announcement made on Thursday. Can you give us a bit of an update? Well, yeah. I mean, the government has been con- uh, consulting with a number of uh, operators within this space, right, from those who are uh, independent brewers to the, the, the larger organizations and, of course, the beer store as well. So what we're what you know the industry seems to be expecting is a liberalization of beer sales and wine sales in Ontario. The government has always been kind of wrangled by this contract that they have with a beer store. The contract essentially gives the beer store near exclusive access to selling certain things like uh, twelve packs and and two fours. And you know, grocery stores could have in some small numbers access to other beer and uh, other kind of alcohol. What the government wants to do is in 2026 really start to expand that, putting 
uh, beer, uh, whether it's, you know, uh, two fours or 12 packs in convenience stores, really widening where beer could be accessed in the province and, and as well wine um, and other kind of mixed alcoholic beverages uh, that are, you know, ready to drink kind of beverages. And, you know, this could be a, a massive change to how alcohol is sold in Ontario, but it can only happen in 2026. And here's why. Uh, in 2015, the government had signed what's called a master framework agreement with the beer store that said that the government could liberalize the sale of alcohol to a point, but the beer store still had access or control over a few certain things, like how many stores or how, how many points of sale there could actually be for beer or alcohol in this province. It was capped at about 450. And, and it you know, meant that the beer store itself would sell some of the larger brands of beer. Remember, it is owned by three multinational companies. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so it shut out a lot of the small brewers right across the province that, cra uh, that, that brew more craft beer. So we don't know the exact details of how this is all going to work out, but in 2026, it seems like the government is going to bring beer to corner stores um, across the province. Uh, we only got a few seconds left here, Colin. Do we know how this is going to change the template or the reaction from the beer store? Are, you know, are they still going to be here, but in a, a smaller form? What, do we know what that's going to look like yet? Well, naturally, as you start to kind of diversify where beer can be sold, it will mean you know, less sales at the beer store itself. So naturally, right. the footprint will start to decline. But we don't know exactly what this new agreement is going to look like with the beer store. There are also a lot of questions, including distribution. How do they um, license convenience stores? Will it follow the same cannabis licensing? That was a bit messy. Who gets to go first and where? Uh, and then as well, how much shelf space is going to be dedicated to big brewers? versus your small neighborhood brewer. Uh, those are questions that haven't been answered, but because the agreement expires in 2026, the government has about two years to work out those finer details before they start you know, opening up the taps, so to speak, and pouring out a lot more beer across the province. Colin DeMello with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief, Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this uh, changes on how we buy beer coming up this week uh, in Ontario. Colin, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. A quick break here. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Lots of chatter in the last 24 hours about a uh, a Canada a national a dental plan. Uh, we've talked about this before at length, and it now it looks like it is uh, slowly coming to fruition. However, a lot of the details are still missing, and it's interesting. We were talking to the Ontario Dental Association yesterday, and we've talked about this a lot over the years, and uh, uh, you know, at the end of the day, when politicians are asked to explain this, um, instead of telling us what it is or how it works, we hear uh, how important great dental care is and how it is an essential part of great health and how everyone deserves it, which I don't think you're going to get anybody to disagree with that. We all know how important good dental uh, care is. That's not the question. The question is, is this the best way to administer that and get the help to the people that need it? Let's bring in Dr. Heather Carr, president of the Canadian Dental Association, and is here now. Heather, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, good afternoon. I'm calling in from my clinic in Halifax. Oh, good to hear. Are, are you are you busy? I hope we're not taking you away from anyone. It's okay. It's All right. I'm here. So, Heather, we certainly all know how important great dental care is right from the very beginning to the very end and how everybody yep. deserves to get it. I don't think anybody wants to debate that. Is this the best way to go about administering it? 
Well, I I think that is a very good question. <laughs> it's and I don't mean it, you know. I, I don't mean mm-hmm. it in a joking way. The reality is that we um, are, you know, we're still waiting for the details. And I and I understand your frustrations because really the dentists don't have all the information they need. Um, that your provincial association, you said you spoke to Dr. Nicolucci from the ODA. Uh, they are working hard, the provincial associations, in discussions with the federal government to make sure that this plan works for patients and the people who are going to provide it. So as soon as we know more, then we'll be happy to share and to talk about some details that we have. Uh, is obviously the challenge here is that we already have a system in place that caters for the majority of the people. Uh, the issue is how do you stop people from sliding through the cracks here and making sure that they get the care uh, that they need as well? Has there been any thought on how we're going to combine these two systems? Is that where the concern is? Well, no, they, as I understand it, and I don't speak for government, certainly my understanding being at the table um, in discussions for a long time, is that the, the federal government really wants to gear this to individuals who don't have care. I mean, the, Dental, the Canadian Dental Association has been advocating forever, you know, for these individuals, the yeah. in low-income persons with disabilities, and our seniors who lose their benefits and or never had them at 65. But it's, it's how they go about providing it to make sure the patients are there. We, you're right. Like, 65% of Canadians have good dental care and it's usually through employer-sponsored plans where they able, they're able to self-fund but we really do want it to focus on that one third and if you look at the release that they made yesterday that does appear to be the groups they're focusing on it's just going to be now it, what do they say the devil's in the details and i think that's the truth it's really going to be now waiting to see how they make it work you know we need to make sure it's, that the patients can select their own dentist uh that it is it is you know, prevention-based, we want to make sure that's there. And and we want to make sure that it's set up so that the administration load's just not too onerous for the dental offices. Um, uh, when talking to uh, provincial organizations, uh, many will say they already have solid plans in place. The issue is there isn't enough funding for them. So, um, again, it's to me, it's about delivery. And is this the best and, and most efficient way to make sure everybody gets it? Uh, you, you know, at the end of the day, are, are we doing that? Are we making sure that, um, you know, rather than starting up a national plan, which now is going to have to jive with a private plan, would it not be better to supply the provinces with what the, they already have done and just allow them to, to fund it the way they choose? Yeah, no, and it's, it, it was the federal government's decision to go this way. And I think mm-hmm. they're, you know, they're trying to make sure it's the same across the country. And, and they're the one, you know, despite all the advice and all the information the dentist can give them, ultimately, it, it is the federal government plan. So, you know, you would have to talk to other people as to why they decided right. to go this rather than combine, because it is an issue. Because I know that they're, from my understanding, they're literally you know, in discussions with each province to make sure that they don't lose, um, you know, they don't lose benefits that are already provided provincially, because that's not the federal government's intent. But now we'll see how they make that work. Do we think, and again, I'm, I'm probably asking you questions, Heather, that you don't know the answers to. Um, well, I, it, it, 
<laughs> is this about is this about making sure that people who have fallen through the cracks get this or do you think this is about transforming the system because if people are concerned about it kind of uh you know crossing the street per se then then obviously that's that's where it's going it, it, will it be limited to i don't know 5 to 10 or 8% of the population or do you see these expanding well you know they've estimated 9 million canadians so really that could cover a great deal of the individuals who, as you say, are falling through the cracks. You know, we're most concerned as dentists that those individuals that can't get care do have it. So I think the opportunity is there to, to cover the individuals who need to be covered. All right. So uh, when do you think you will know more on this, Heather? You said you're in meetings with them and such. When do you think we will know Along more details of, of how this is going to th- play out? Yeah. So it's... The, and, and I, the provincial and territorial dental associations are the organization that represents the members or their dentists and, and trying to get the best plan for the patients because, you know, ultimately we're care providers. You know, we really do want mm-hmm. to see these patients get the care. So I would say over the next couple months as, you know, as we get going, because they would like people to be able to get treatment as of May. So, you know, if that's going to happen, then I would hope sometime within the next eight to 10 weeks that we'll have more information. But a lot of that will depend on how the provincial and territorial dental associations and the federal government, the Minister of Health, you know, yesterday he said he's committed to a fair deal and um, for everyone and that he really is committed to having these patients get care. So now the devil's in the details. So now we'll have these conversations and hopefully I'll be able to answer your questions much better if I'm talking to you again in the near future. Dr. Heather Carr with us, president of the Canadian Dental Association from her practice out east talking about the new federal dental care plan. Heather, thanks for the time. Good luck. Hopefully we'll chat again. Yeah, happy to be here. And anytime you need to have some some questions partly answered and hopefully fully answered. (laughs) Thank you, Heather. I appreciate that. People are asking for a sustainable ceasefire for Hamas to lay down arms and release hostages. Is it that easy? Uh, the Prime Minister, along with Australia and New Zealand, have called for a sustainable ceasefire in Gaza. Uh, how you get everybody to agree on that? I'm not sure it's as easy an ask. Uh, this is ahead of a UN vote that is expected to result in a similar call. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Jack Cunningham with his PhD program coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College and Monk School. Uh, at the University of Toronto and here now. Jack, as always, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, Scott. Hope you are, too. Is the tone changing uh, the longer this drags on for Israeli to, to, to back it down, to tap the brakes here? Well, I think the longer the conflict drags on, the more international pressure is going to mount on uh, on Israel. Uh, people see the images of what's happening in Gaza. They're not... Uh, not pretty, and they like to think there's uh, there's a viable alternative. The problem is there really isn't one. There's no such thing as a sustainable ceasefire under these conditions. Uh, a ceasefire, whether it lasted days or years, would essentially last only until Hamas thought the opportun- the moment was opportune to uh, renew hostilities with the uh, with Israel. Uh, Netanyahu government realizes that. And it's uh, as a result, it's uh, it's not going to desist until Hamas is broken militarily. Uh, why are we not making the same ask of Hamas? Um, 
Because we are led by people whose instinct in any unpleasant situation is to try to split the difference. The problem is there are uh, irreconcilable differences here. On the one side, there are those who believe we should support Israel wholeheartedly. On the other hand, there are those who uh, who don't. And uh, a, um, a position that uh, makes demands of Israel uh, downplays uh, any any request of uh, of Hamas is likely to uh, fly fairly well in the UN General Assembly, where uh, where there's an anti-Israel majority. Should Israel be more clear on what Gaza looks like post-war? What is the plan? Uh, what about the refugees? Would that help? I think it might help. Of course, uh, some of the critics are uh, fundamentally unappeasable. But uh, the Netanyahu government certainly should devote a little more attention to the question of what comes next. What will uh, what will happen to Gaza? What will happen to its inhabitants once, uh, once Hamas is broken? Uh, as we've talked before, this is always being framed like Palestinians against Israelis, one religion versus another, left versus right, as opposed to democracy and freedom versus uh, the opposite. Uh, can Palestinians separate themselves from Hamas if they showed signs of that? Would that help moving this forward? Uh, it might help, and I'm not. I'm not sure how many want to. Uh, the problem is that uh, Hamas does. Uh, sad though it may be, uh, retain a certain following among Palestinians, even though it is uh, quite uh, quite cruelly using uh, Palestinians as, uh, as human shields, uh, seizes upon uh, Palestinian corpses as opportunities to uh, parade uh, bloody corpses in front of the TV cameras and, and denounce Israel. Uh, I would like to see a lot of people be a lot harder on Hamas than they are. So do Palestinians support Hamas or not? Uh, some do, some don't. We don't have particularly reliable public opinion data. How difficult is that? Seen. So is, are we ever going to get that kind of answer? Do we need those sorts of answers before we can find peace and some sort of solution? Before some sort of definitive solution can be found, we will need to need not only answers to the question of how many Palestinians support Hamas, but uh, we need to see a lot of the ones who do turn away from it. As I've said before, Hamas is fundamentally unappeasable. It rejects the idea of coexistence with Israel, and that's why it uh, it cannot be dealt with as a reasonable partner for peace. And if the uh, the Palestinians want uh, want a state, want self determination, want a viable future, uh, they've got to a be liberated from uh, from Hamas and b given the opportunity and take the opportunity to demonstrate that they are not prisoners of Hamas and its extremist ideology. Uh, do we have to spend more time talking about that? Because it seems until Hamas and or the Palestinians separate themselves from Hamas, the West isn't going to accept them because they're a terrorist organization. Yep, and uh, and that's uh, that's one of the reasons that uh, that uh, the climate of opinion is as uh, unpromising as it is. I don't see that uh, are, changing anytime soon. Are you surprised that are so many are supporting Palestinians as opposed to asking for that type of solution and that separation from Hamas? I wish I could say I am, but I'm I'm not. I mean, people uh, people understandably have a visceral revulsion 
when they see pictures of war, they uh, they dislike it. They wish it. Uh, they wish thing, things were otherwise. Sure. But uh, wishing and dealing with the real world are not the same thing. People need, yeah. I think, in many cases, to face up to these rather unpleasant realities. Where do you think this is going to go, Jack? I mean, um, they said they're not going to stop till they rid uh, Gaza of Hamas. Where does that leave everything? Because, again, it doesn't seem like Israel's got a plan or Israel's got a plan after that. It does leave uh, Gaza facing a, a serious challenge of reconstruction, of, uh, of establishing some new regime, whether it's the Palestinian Authority, which, which seems problematic, or some UN-brokered uh, solution. But it's going to be a, a humongous challenge. Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, University of Toronto. Jack, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. Lots of discussion in and around uh, the housing crisis and uh, population growth and such, because really it's, you know, as we've talked uh, a little bit earlier today uh, in regard to all of this uh, with our guest from the Globe and Mail, um, you know, there's really uh, like three solutions or three, uh, I guess, choices that we have to make or a combination of all of these in order to get this done. And it's very, very simple. We have to densify within our city limits, uh, which is, uh, uh, you know, obviously what we're doing. And we also have ex- have to expand or build on our urban boundaries. So we have to go up and in, and we also have to go out uh, in order to uh, to solve the problem, because there isn't enough with infill alone. Uh, so it, it's, it's, it's got to be a combination of the two. And also perhaps a tap on the immigration, uh, simply because we can't bring in over a million people every year and only have uh, housing for like 200,000 of them. That's new every year, as opposed to those that are already waiting here, trying to buy homes, living in parents' basements, and are just unaffor- the situation is just unaffordable. And you can blame uh, supply chains and high interest rates and everything, but this all existed before the pandemic. And if you don't build enough housing uh, and you keep bringing more and more people in, sooner or later, you're going to create a crisis. And that's exactly where we are. I find it fascinating that now that we are in a crisis, this has become an issue for the federal government or even provincial governments or even municipal uh, municipalities, uh, because for the longest time, we've ignored it. And, you know, after we do all of this, what are we going to make sure that it, what are we going to do to make sure that it doesn't happen again? What are we going to do that we make sure that, uh, to make sure that the people that we do bring in have a place to live? Uh, what are we going to do to make sure the students that come in to go to our universities and colleges have a place to live? Uh, universities step up the housing, the residents, as opposed to taking over the town of Westdale. I mean, you know, everybody has sort of dropped the ball here. And then we're all wondering how we've got into the housing crisis that we're in. And I'm just uh, buying time to here till we get Merteza Hader on, our uh, our, our, our uh, expert from Toronto Metropolitan University on this. But, uh, you know, again, it, it's, it's a problem that we knew that was coming. It's a problem that all the experts knew was coming, and yet we refuse to deal with it. And, again, if you don't spend 
time every year building and bringing more people in, uh, sooner or later you create a crisis. Lots of chatter about how we dealt with this post-World War II. And the government is currently looking at a wartime housing blueprint so you can sort of whip through a lot of the red tape and get things done quicker, which is great. But how do you avoid building those cookie cutter homes that we all see in the posters from the anti-urban sprawlers? So it's a fine balance and it's not a discussion that will be solved in the extremes. What is going to bring us together to find a solution? Let's bring in Mataza Hader, professor of data science, real estate management, Toronto Metropolitan University. Mataza, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thank you. And you and hope you're doing well, too. Murtaza, thanks for the time. You know, we're hearing uh, plans about the federal government's uh, wartime housing plan, something similar that they did in, in World War II to make sure they had enough housing for uh, those returning back from the war and stuff and the population, which was obviously exploding. How do we do this and not make the same mistakes regarding urban sprawl that we did the first time? Because anytime you listen to the anti-urban sprawlers, they'll show you a picture of a neighborhood in wartime housing and how all these these cookie cutter homes are all just in a long line. Um, it seems almost as if we're going back and creating the same problem over again. Are you are, are you concerned we won't have a 2023 lens on this? Yeah, I know. I think this is quite interesting. This is um, a few years ago. Uh, I, I was in part of conversations with the industry, and we started using this term, saying that we need a wartime effort. So finally, it's surprising that it took three years for those those conversations to reach the um, the government, but they are using this. Well, there's a big difference between what was going on back then after the war and, and today. Um, I think that uh, we need to be very careful, assuming that nothing has happened in the last 70-plus years. Um, when those cookie-cutter homes were built, uh, they were built for veterans who didn't have money, who didn't have uh, who needed support. They were subsidized. Um, and and they were uh, willing to accept whatever was made available to them, and that's where they raised their families, and boomers were raised in those homes. Uh, baby boomers were raised in their homes. But the question is, now you have a very nuanced um, and a very picky, choosy kind of a clientele out there um, that defines affordability based on taste parameters much more so than just housing or affordability. I mean, people say, I can't find an affordable house to buy, it doesn't mean that they can't find an affordable house anywhere in Canada or GTA. It means that they can't buy the house in the neighborhood they want of the size and quality they desire. So um, right. so realizing that people have choices and when you give them these bare bone type, and I'm assuming, I mean, there's not much detail in the government plans, but I'm assuming that they will be these uniform designed, similar looking cookie cutter homes or something like that. Uh, would there be a demand for those? Now, um, that part I'm not sure of. What I understand is the motivation for the government. They want to have these pre-approved design uh, where, where whenever the plan goes to the municipality, they don't have any objections to it so that we can get the approval processes faster because we have, the, the, we, the government is pushing pre-approved, pre-sanctioned, pre-sort um, uh, of and review designs to the planning authority so that they can speed up the approval process. But as a result, when it gets built, would it be desirable enough for people to say, ah, I want that? Or will you have to give it to the to, to the population that wouldn't have any choice? The question is, are these subsidized or non-subsidized market homes? If they are market homes and they are cookie cutter, it will be difficult to sell. If they are subsidized homes, then yes, that's a different story. We can have another debate about it. 
obviously now uh, the demand is great. We're going to be rushing. Are you concerned that mistakes will be made here? That we might repeat mistakes? How do we do, how do we avoid doing that? Well, I'm not never concerned about making mistakes. The biggest mistake is not doing anything, right? So I'm, I'm glad yeah. that the government is doing it. That's not so. If we are afraid that the mistakes will be made, hence we shouldn't do anything, that would be the worst policy. So I think the government should be given credit that they are willing to take risks. The question is, uh, can we make things better? Can we? As and I think, when as the process moves along, they will realize that the the in theory the idea works. In practical, we have to tweak it for 2023 and 2024. We would have to look at the clientele which we would like to serve. And then the motivation is that we would have these designed, well-designed, well-engineered homes. The blueprints would be provided to the municipality. So the local government bureaucracies will not be as powerful in rejecting and causing things, you know, add this or add that. And we have to negotiate with the builder or the developer. We'll be able to address those delays because these will be pre-approved, pre-sanctioned plans that the government mm. in the province would have their approval on it to go through the approval process quickly. Then I think there should be flexibility in the design, in the quality. You know, you can have marble top and you can have something that's not as expensive. So those kinds of flexibilities should be left there so that it's not necessarily cookie cutter from outside and a cookie cutter from inside. So there is some flexibility in the design parameters, and then that would attract people. But at the end of the day, what we what I'll be concerned is not just the aesthetics of it. What I'm concerned about mostly is the time to construct a house. Um, so approval processes yeah. have to be optimized, so it takes less time to approve them. And then the construction, the engineering of it has to improve. I speak as an engineer, not just as a, as a planner, but we have to work with structural engineers and civil engineers and others to be able to com- reduce the construction time. If you ask a builder, they'll think, yeah, we can build a house in six to eight months. But in reality, we need to get it down to two, two to three months. And that could only happen if you go with prefab and, 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 uh, and, and uh, uh, modular homes. If the construction time is reduced to three months, we have a we have a chance to build a million plus more homes than business as usual. But with usual engineering practices, if the houses are taking two to six to eight months to build, or if a high rise takes about four years to build, then obviously this will be marginal right. improvement. We won't see much much differences from it. Murtaza Hader with us, Professor of Data Science, Real Estate Management, Toronto Metropolitan University. The housing discussion continues. Murtaza, thanks for the time and insight. As always, much appreciated. Be well. You too. Take care. Universities relying on international students for part of their income may have to adjust as new rules from Ottawa see the financial onus on international students increased. What does this mean moving forward? Let's bring in Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, and here now. Ian, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Doing very well. Thank you, Scott. So uh, are, are universities using international students as revenue generators? I mean, why is this becoming such a problem or an issue now? Uh, it, the short answer is yes. Um, and I've read, believe me, um, uh, and I'm not anti-foreign uh, student at all. Um, I, I teach uh, in business, which is very popular with foreign students. And, um, and I am, I am uh, teaching uh, maybe 20, 25% of my students are foreign students. And so I'm, I'm very familiar and I teach abroad and around the world. So I, I want you to understand, I'm not, I'm not here to criticize foreign students, but your question was, are we 
use are the universities using foreign students to supplement their income? And the answer is yes. And the reason why is because governments have been restricting the flow of income, uh, the flow of subsidies to the universities. In fact, we had a freeze in Ontario, even though our costs went up every year. And foreign tuition fees, people may not realize this, are not regulated. We, we are allowed to charge the full unsubsidized cost, and we can put them up every year, unlike domestic students. And so universities, but not just Ontario, other universities across Canada have been using them too. There's, I believe it's Cape Breton Island, it's something like 90% of their students are foreign. In defense of my own university, we have one of the lower percentages of foreign students, but it's not, we're not here to talk about my university, who I think is acting responsibly. Um, the, there's a lot of universities that are, are relying very heavily on, on uh, foreign tuition to, uh, as, a, as a substitute for the lack of government funding from uh, the provincial government. Uh, and what has changed regarding international students uh, for the uh, moving forward? Why are they concerned? Um, I, I think this is a fascinating question. I'm, I'm glad you're talking about it, Scott, because it really is important so everybody understands this. Um, number one, we have a very strong university system, as does uh, UK and US and Australia. So when I've been teaching around the world for literally 35 years across Europe, Asia, South America, students want to come to these countries. Our universities are seen as the best in the world. This isn't uh, raw, raw propaganda I'm giving you. We The standards mm -hmm. are seen as very high, and you get a degree from a university in Canada, the UK, Australia, US, and you know, uh, and you're from a developing country. You are really set for life. You you've got a very prestigious degree um, because the standards. These are you know, we're very high income countries, very rigorous standards, and so it's very prestigious to get that degree. So first off, the demand is there, and this long predates the pandemic. This goes way back into the my goodness into the 80s and 90s. So there's that issue, and then se separately from our point of view here in Canada. It's become intermingled uh, and tangled up with the housing um, shortage yeah. because there's massive shortages, as we know, around 3 million, depending which number you look at and which time, but somewhere around 3 million. CMHC says it needs to, we're going to be hitting maybe 4 million uh, shortfall. And we're admitting 800,000 students a year on student visas, much of dramatic increase from only a few years ago. So this is, this issue of foreign students is really. I think it's fair to say is a subset of the housing crisis in our country. It's not that people I think are anti-immigration or anti-student. It's that there's a belief that there is just simply isn't enough housing to house these uh, foreign students coming here. Do universities need to do more to address the housing? I mean, at one time you went to university, you just stayed at residence. Uh, are, are universities keeping up with their residents and the ability to house students? Some are trying. I mean, we just built two more buildings. I mean, uh, uh, but, you know, some universities, we're not in the downtown, you know, like uh, University of Toronto is. <clears throat> we're out in the, I wouldn't say the suburbs, but we've got a lot of land. But there's older universities that are in the downtown, like McGill or U of T. Well, they just can't build more housing because they're sitting in some of the most expensive real estate in the country. The the the, the smaller town universities and the ones out in the suburbs are on the edges. They've got more of a possibility of building uh of, of building um you know student housing. But uh, I you know the the housing the overarching housing crisis is so grim. It's so short. It's so bad that this is 
I, um, and I, I've already said I'm very pro foreign students, but the shortage is so great, Scott. I mean, we're, whether we're two and a half million or three million the, uh, short of housing for everybody in Canada, bringing in 800,000 students is is really putting gasoline on the fire. Uh, will we see a lowering in that rate? Uh, will will it center on the the uh, the arrival of international students as opposed to people who are actually immigrating or using that that avenue? Um, it, I, it depends whether which government is in. I mean, the, the Trudeau government has been there's on the record they're very loath to actually cut back on the on the visas. Uh, the, the Conservative government has talked about wanting to solve the housing crisis. I know I, I, I'm, I'm just speculating, but you're asking me to. I, I think that they, if the Conservatives were elected, they probably would cut back. They certainly wouldn't go to zero, nothing close, but they might go from yeah. 800,000 to, I don't know, 500,000 or something like that. But um, again, the, the problem, they've got to talk about the housing and deal with the housing at the same time that they talk about um, uh, universities. And it's going to come back. And sorry, one more thing I want to bring out, Scott. It's tied into the question of the funding of universities because you know, um, uh, politicians, elected officials in every province don't want to raise tuition fees. And so our tuition fees are actually very low. I'm not talking for foreign students. I'm talking for Canadians are very low mm-hmm. even compared to the states. And so, you know, if they don't uh, if they don't want us to rely so much on foreign students, then they're going to have to either either provide a lot more funding to universities, which is very unlikely because of the healthcare crisis, or I think where we're going to end up going is deregulating the, the the tuition fees. People may not realize it. Universities do not set their own tuition fees. They are set by the province in every province. So we're completely regulated of the income we get by the province. If they're not willing to put more money in, then I think what we're going to see is a movement towards gradual deregulation and let the universities charge what they can charge. And some people will get priced to be very blunt. Some people will say, you know what? I don't want to go to university that badly. I'll go to a community college or I'll go somewhere else because it's too expensive now and it's not worth it any longer. Will there be other, we only got a few seconds here. Will there be other options for funding universities? Are there other options? Uh, there's been models where you pay back based on your future income. Um, you know, I, I'm very pro-university, as I'm sure you know. I believe in my own product or service, if I can call it that. But very quickly, and I've shown the stats to my own students, the people that go to university, are, no matter all these rumors that you know or, or theories that it, it's not worth it anymore, that's not supported by the data. The future high-income people in the country, I'm talking the top mm-hmm. two quintiles. These are the people, the future elites. Overwhelmingly, it's correlated to going to university. University education, if you rank, and StatScan does, ranks all the people, okay, those average income for those with university, those with community college, those with only grade 12, those with only public school. Universities are at the top of the pecking order. They're at the top of the hierarchy. They get paid average income. So they're the future elite. So I don't get uh, depressed or excited about the fact that we're charging higher tuition fees because these are tomorrow's executives and vice presidents and partners and medical doctors who are going to be making very large amounts of money. So, you know, so you you go into debt now, you are going to down the road. I tell my students, you may be sitting really poor right now. You think you're poor because you have a backpack. I said in 10 or 15 or 20 years, you're going to be the elites of this country, the mm. high income elites. So, you know, if they pay more for the privilege of going to university, they will they will earn it back over their lifetime.
Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Yes, thanks very much, Scott. Thanks. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your spectator. And his latest, Hamilton's Public School Board is discussing restricting what trustees can say and to whom. This is a terrible idea, right, Scott? And he is with us now. Scott Radley, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. How are you? I'm doing well. If we if they can't speak to anybody, how do we know how wacky they are? Because, boy, there's been plenty of examples of that of late. Yeah, uh, this one, I don't even know where to start on the thought process of this one because if you are a private little country club that has your executive board, you know, sure, you can say just our, our president speaks for us. That's not this. These people's names were on a municipal ballot. They were elected by the public. They are paid by the public. They're making mm-hmm. decisions about our kids in the school. But I, it comes back to the fact these are elected officials. And somehow the idea that some of the people on this board apparently think elected officials should be restricted on what they should say to the public is ludicrous. And here's the thing, Scott, uh, some of them might love this idea because now it gets them out of having to speak. Oh, I'm sorry. I can't talk. It's, yeah, you know, new yeah. rules. You are an elected official. You are responsible to the constituency. And I, I just like, to me, it's an, ins- it's, it's an insane discussion to even be having. This is a school board that is spending hours discussing stuff and going off on tangents when our public school EQAO scores in this city are 18% in some cases below the provincial average. Here's a better idea. Stop talking about stupid stuff that only you care about and work on getting our kids better educated. I think this is something that we're seeing across all school boards. And I can think of a couple of things right off the top of my head. Uh, the York Region Board saying we can't cover anything with the students regarding the Queen's funeral. Yep. It will be too traumatic for them. So no song, no history lesson, no none of that. Because they were worried it would be traumatic for yeah, the kids. Yeah, tr- it would trigger something. Uh, exactly. Uh, we got a uh, big uh, prosthetic, big-breasted uh, teacher in Halton. We've got Peel Region that literally had to be taken over by the province. They were so dysfunctional. So, I mean, it's not like it's just Hamilton. It's everywhere. So, uh, again, you and I both know this is the entry level for politics. Most people do not even pay attention to this. Scott, let me, I wrote this some today. Extreme- I wrote this today. I would, and just, I want you to continue, but I just on that point. I bet you that if you were to poll a hundred people, 95 of them in this city could not tell you who their school board trustee is. And if that's the case, which I truly believe, we need more talking from our school board trustees, more vocalizing, more public statements, not less. No, we have to figure out where the riffraff is and get rid of it because there's plenty of examples of it. And I've just given you uh, yes. a few of them. And it's amazing how many will use this as a stepping stone into other politics. Uh, many have an agenda other than the kids. Look, it, it, the reality is that we have seen, I think in, mm, is it PEI? I can't remember now. I'm, you're catching me a little cold here, but. Uh, where the province has taken school boards, it's now under the auspices of the government. 
Yeah. That could be some someplace we are heading. The boards don't seem to see that they could be deciding themselves right out of existence because at some point, some government is going to say, well, look, if you're not really wanting to be elected officials, fine. We won't make you elected officials. We will, we will appoint someone to be in charge of the school boards. People will lose their minds then, but what would be the argument against it? If, if everything we're doing is saying, we don't give a rip about our school boards. We don't care. We don't care if they speak. We don't care if they're muzzled. We don't care anything. If a government then says, we want to then bring in our own people to do it, what argument could you possibly give against it? And, and I, but I, I believe that may be where we're heading. It certainly would provide some consistency, maybe. All right, Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Read him in your Hamilton Spectator. His latest is there. Thank you, Scott. Have a great show. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer to have the last word email from david hello scott the anti-urban sprawl woke crowd is the same group screaming not in my backyard when builders in the city try to build high-rise housing in their neighborhood it's okay if they build in someone else's hood but not theirs says dave keep right except to pass 